So I'm delighted to welcome Will Curley, who is directing Britain's comic opera Albert Herring at the school's Silk Street Theatre, and that's opening on the 9th of June. So welcome, Will. Um, hello. 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 We've heard rumours that your production features power cuts and Margaret Thatcher. Um, doesn't sound like the usual sleepy rural setting of Albert Herring. Can you explain about that? Yes. Well, actually, our production is set in uh, rural Suffolk, uh, which is sometimes sleepy. And it's very much set in the world, uh, the district that, that Britain um, and his librettist, Eric Crozier, uh, knew and loved. Um, in fact, Eric Crozier, who was the librettist, used to have a, uh, his family used to have a, a, a village shop, a bit like the one that's depicted in Albert Herring. Um, but I've decided to update the production to the 1970s. Uh, I've done this piece twice before, and... In the, um, in the opera score at the beginning, it says that it's set in May and June of 1900. And both times that I've done this production before, uh, uh, done this piece before, I decided to uh, you know, absolutely follow that to the letter and set it in 1900. Though um, a little in a kind of stylized 1900, not a sort of slavishly naturalistic 1900. Um, and I've always been of the view, in fact, that, that if uh, an opera score says that something takes place in a particular epoch, that it's a good idea to have a good reason for not setting it in the epoch. When I did a production here a few years ago of uh, Mozart opera called La Finta Semplice, there's a reference in the score itself to um, the year 1768. You know, a character says to somebody else, what year is it? What year are we in? 1768. So um, I, I very much did it in 1768 when I did that. Uh, early Mozart opera before but coming back to Albert Herring for the third time I think I just wanted to do something different with it and Tom Rogers who's my designer and I got very excited about finding another period in history a more recent history where um, there's a real clash of, um, of cultures going on where you've got your very traditionalist um, people um, fighting against the, the shock of the new. So um, Margaret Thatcher, you say Margaret Thatcher features in the opera. She doesn't actually feature. Um, the lady of the manor, who's called Lady Billows, and who's the aristocratic head of the, of the village, um, she, she resembles um, one of those Tory women of the <laughs> 1970s. And she resembles a particular uh, grocer's daughter from Grantham. But she is not actually Margaret Thatcher. And... Um, as we sort of looked at this era, this 1970s era, there were so many sort of wonderful parallels with, um, you know, youth culture coming through and being um, horrendously offensive to the old-timers who are trying to hang on to the traditions of their village. So, you know, in the 70s we've got punk rock, haven't we, which um, uh, certainly is a, is a youth movement that, that young people adore and that, that rocks the boat. And also, I guess we've got this sort of traditionalist uh, figure in... in um, Margaret Thatcher, who's sort of um, really, uh, it's important for her to hang on to the way that things used to be in the so-called good old days. And um, yes, and power cuts came through as well. It was interesting that uh, there are gas lamps that are lit in 1900 in the shop. When Albert comes back from the May Day Festival, he comes into the shop and it's dark and he lights a, a gas lamp. And actually, uh, even from my childhood, I remember these power cuts that happened. I was born in 65, so I guess, you know, I was, I was growing up in sort of primary school and so on, and I can remember those power cuts of the early 1970s. 
and it very much was a world where you were trying to do your homework by candlelight and so on and um, you had lamps around the place and it just seemed to make a lot of, of sense. When you do start to examine a period in history, I guess you're looking for the truth of the characters and as we know, you know, the themes, the themes in, uh, in Albert Herring are universal about um, the older people in the community who want things to stay as they are and the younger people who want to, to move forward. And, and the character of Albert is someone who, having been sort of hamstrung and tied to his mother's apron strings, is someone who breaks away to a new freedom. And Sid and Nancy, who are this wonderful, young, loving couple in the village, um, they represent the future, I guess. And although they're not exactly, you know, modelled on Sid Vicious and, and Nancy Spungen, that's just a coincidence. <laughs> um, Sid and Nancy, you know, are brave enough to do something different, to break out on their own. And when they go to dances at the Jubilee Hall, they're likely to spike their hair and um, pogo around and, uh, and, and thus offend um, someone of Lady Billows' uh, sensibilities. <laughs> Um, well, you mentioned that you, you've um, directed here before um, for the opera programme. Um, I saw your production of The Magic Flute, which was set in a world of kind of the Matrix and Japanese geisha. Um, so when you do something that's out of its original period, it does seem to be very adventurous. Um, and is that something you particularly aim for, or does it just kind of happen? Well, I think that whatever piece you're working on, you want to try and find a way into it which will um, tell the story in a truthful way. And um, when I did the magic flute here, um, you have to remember the magic flute is bonkers anyway. You know, um, Schikaneda and Mozart have created this opera that is, you know, one of the first stage directions is uh, something like uh, Prince Tamino comes over the craggy rocks and he's wearing a magnificent Japanese samurai um, outfit, you know, and he's pursued by a monster. So immediately you're in a world where there, isn't, there probably isn't a, a right answer. And um, I've really been thinking about the way that, that in modern times we sometimes find our epic lives through the cyber world, you know, and, and Second Life and these other virtual reality worlds have become very... Uh, had and have become very popular in the last few years. And um, I just had in my mind that there was somebody who was um, doing a very boring um, office job who had this other secret life, which was that they were a sort of fabulous prince in Second Life. And once we started to open this world up of this other world that Tomino you know, breaks free into... Um, Wonderful images started to occur, like the, the monster, which is effectively a serpent at the beginning, we decided was an oversized computer mouse. So Tomino comes on stage and is pursued by a scary, enormous, you know, 50-foot-high uh, computer mouse that has a scary flashing red eyes. And, and then we started to find other um, people, you know, so, so Pamina became a kind of... When she got into Second Life World, she became a kind of um, Lara Croft... You know, one of those sort of adventure uh, uh, game characters. And um, again, I, I, I mean, for the magic flute, I'm not sure there is a, a right answer in where you set it. You know, do you go back and try and set it in Mozart's time? Well, that doesn't necessarily make sense because that's a sort of historical leap. How does that add up? Very often people will come and think that there's some authentic answer and I think the answer is always in finding the energy and particularly when you're working with young people to find a way of um, getting them excited about, about a period. So 
Um, yes, yeah, so the central thing for me is to find um, the right parallels, the right energy, the right uh, setting which will set the piece free. Um, there isn't a pre-existing right answer, it seems to me. There's um, the right intuition that, that gets you into telling a story in an exciting theatrical way. So once you've decided where and when you're going to set the production, how do you communicate that to the designer? Is it quite challenging to make these amazing ideas into reality? Well, in the, um, in the case of... Uh, I mean, I've worked with the designer who I'm working with on this project um, many times, and we have a kind of a shorthand now, I guess. The central thing is always to listen to the piece a lot. Um, I never want to look at a DVD of another production, and sometimes designers will bring me images that they've found on the World Wide Web of other productions. But when I'm working on a show, I never want to see what anybody else has done. So, for example, when I was working at Holland Park, again with Tom Rogers, my designer, who I'm doing uh, this Albert Herring with, um, there was a, another production of the piece I was doing. I was doing a, a Donizetti opera called La Fille du Régiment. And um, there was a famous production with Natalie Desai that was going on at, at the Opera House at the time with Dawn French playing the funny speaking part. And again, I, I had to make sure that I wasn't thinking about what they were doing. Because sometimes you can look at somebody else's work and think, oh, uh, gosh, I should have thought to do that, or they've done that, so I won't do that. So, and, and actually, my dad's really sweet. He finds me these, um, these DVDs and recordings and tapes things from the telly and says to me, oh, I've got a tape of so-and-so, I understand you're doing it. And I would say, that's very kind, Dad, but I don't really want to see it. I want to listen to the piece as much as I can and think about... Uh, see what images are occurring and the way to work with a designer is well I suppose it's it's uh, lots of sketches and lots of chats and lots of drawings and then eventually you move into a, a model box which is a scale model of the, the set itself of the theatre and you start to sort of push little figures around and, and uh, work with um, you know miniature things that are a way of thinking about the way that you're going to tell the story but the relationship between you know, director, designer and, and lighting designer is very much one of, um, um, I think, playing to people's strengths. You know, Tom is a terrifically talented uh, person who, who is able to sum up a period visually or is able to help me to tell a story visually or is able to find a way of, of setting the piece in a, particular, um, in a particular era or a particular time or a particular um, uh, theatrical context. And, um, you know, I wouldn't dream of designing myself Lots of designers seem to move into directing, but I certainly wouldn't dream of designing something because I, I wouldn't know where to begin. And, and again, opera is a collaborative art, and it's wonderful when you get um, all of these forces coming together from the singers and the orchestral players and the peers and the conductor and the lighting designer and the costume designer. You know, all of these forces are coming together to make something uh, hopefully bigger than the sum of the parts, and that's what can be particularly exciting. Um, when you see music and theatre working together in opera and that's, that's why I love doing uh, opera as well as theatre Yeah. Um, so going back to Albert Herring yeah. um, for people who might not be familiar with it can you explain a bit about what it offers to student singers and musicians is there something particularly helpful in the process well I think that um, Ben Britton is a a particular kind of genius in the way that he is able to 
uh, encapsulate the way that, that people are and the way people behave. And um, he's just very witty in his inventiveness. You know, when he started writing these, uh, these chamber operas, as they're called, um, he decided that there was a way of, without having a huge symphony orchestra, being able to use a quartet plus several other musicians, but certainly a very small orchestra, to be able to, um, you know, tell stories um, in an exciting way. And, and he, he, it's very wittily written. And I think the characters are very, uh, very clear, and they all have music that is is tremendously um, powerful. So, what, uh, so even though the piece is sixty five years old, um, it's ex extraordinarily fresh and, and fun. And I, I don't know what will young uh, singers get from it. I hope they get the experience of of setting free this piece in a, in a new way and um, it's certainly uh, something that people seem to be having fun in rehearsal and today we've just had our final rehearsal room runs and, and we're about to move into the theatre from tomorrow morning okay. so uh, we've, we've culminated our, our, our weeks of work in the rehearsal and um, yeah I think the central thing is that it's um, like any, any piece of classic art it's not exactly timeless it's just got this, this energy there's a danger that we look at a, a score and think that a score is um, is an opera. And actually a score is... Uh, uh, what happens is that a score isn't the opera. The opera happens when people start to play with it. You know, There's no pre-existing right answer. What happens is the right energy. And it's the same as you know, when I'm working with actors with a text. The text of the play isn't a play. You know, It becomes a play when we start to play with it. So... I think there's a tremendous spirit of fun in the way this piece is written. Britman and Crozier are very fond of the world that they're writing about, yet also very frustrated by it. You know, it's a very uh, cloying world, the world of small town, uh, rural villages, and it's something that Albert, the protagonist, really needs to break away from, and and he does break away from it in a in a very funny uh, funny way. I think also it's a good experience for for students at this stage in their development to be able to, you know. Uh, work out how to play operatic comedy. It's a real challenge. Very often, opera is very sort of earnest and um, and full of furrowed brows. But actually, to find the lightness of touch and and comic playing that um, that happens in the orchestra as well. The orchestra is full of witty little touches. Like um, Britain gets the uh, the violins using high harmonics to make the sound of a lover's whistle. You know, so Sid when he's whistling to get Nancy to come down from her window. The, um, the orchestra also plays with that in the sounds that they make. It's full of those witty touches that I think um, uh, I think it's it's a good skill for young singers to have to be able to play this kind of comic material as well as the more you know um, heavy, earnest material that very often you're singing in, in grander operas. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you've worked at the school a few times before, as we as we spoke about earlier. Um, what makes you come back here? Is there something you particularly enjoy about? working here? Well I have to say that um, I always um, longed to direct a show at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and when I was first starting out in opera one of the first jobs I got was as an assistant director here. I did two, um, I did two shows I think as an assistant director here in okay. the opera department and um, it was in the days when I was assisting. I was building my way up as an assistant. So I'd been an assistant at the Royal Shakespeare Company and I was about to go off to um, Glyndebourne Opera North, Welsh National Opera. So I was doing my apprenticeship as an assistant. 
And once you've been an assistant somewhere, you have a, a dream that you might come back and get to direct a production of your own. And uh, it took a while, and uh, for years I was thinking, why am I not getting to direct a show at the Guildhall? Um, I'm obviously not schmoozing the right people, I, I wish I was better at uh, pressing the flesh at first night parties. But um, like all these things in a freelance career, you know, things come in a timely way, and uh, hopefully when one's ready for them. And, and now, of course, I'm the other side of that, and, and I've been lucky enough to direct... Uh, four major um, opera productions for the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. This is my, this is my fourth. Um, what's the appeal? Well, it's always really exciting to work with singers who are at the beginning of stellar careers because many of the singers you see here at the Guildhall um, in the opera department are really at the beginning of, of um, extremely exciting uh, operatic careers. And it's wonderful to work with people when they're in that state of formation. Of course it's nice to work with very experienced performers too, um, but it's, uh, it's a real privilege and a pleasure to work with uh, students who are setting out um, on their you know, professional trail, professional trails, and um, yeah, so I suppose that's the buzz about it. Also you have to remember at the Guildhall you're working with students from every department. So I'm working with student stage managers who are, are learning what it is to be a stage manager. I'm going to production meetings that are being run by student production managers. Um, you know, the, the, the people who are, are doing the lighting, although I have a very brilliant uh, professional lighting designer who's been the head of, um, of lighting at the Royal Court Theatre, a very talented lady called Johanna Town. Um, she's being assisted by students who are learning how to be lighting designers who in the future will be you know, lighting designers in their own right. Yeah. So I guess this, uh, this sense of, of energy and excitement that comes from people being at the beginning of their careers is, is part of uh, why I, I love working here. And um, also, you know, uh, I'm a freelance person and um, I, I take what offers come, <laughs> otherwise I, I don't get to... Um, get to eat you know so all of us freelance artistic people are waiting for the next invitation and uh, if nobody's saying come out and play then we get a bit worried and it's nice of course to come back to somewhere where you know how the uh, the systems work and um, and it's exciting to be you know feeding um, feeding this uh, this enterprise that uh, that of course for me was um, was a big beginning it really was my beginning in opera, I remember the first time I assisted here, I, I think I could uh, barely read a score, you know, and so that was a, a, a big beginning for me, having mainly done theatre to come into opera, and of course then I, I fell in love with it. So it's got happy memories for me as well, uh, uh, somewhere where I was able to um, start my apprenticeship as a director, and, um, you know, I relish my, my connection with the Guildhall. Oh, well, thank you very much for joining us, and, and we're looking forward to Albert Herring, which opens on the 9th of June. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Will. Thank you.